You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions, usually over three glasses of wine. But of course, we are in lockdown. How's it going? You all right? My guest today has been on our screens for years and years now. In his chef whites, primarily overseeing MasterChef The Professionals as one of the country's finest Michelin-starred chefs. Lancashire born and raised, he's the son of a fruit and veg supplier who started his life in a professional kitchen at the Savoy. Very fancy. Before joining Albert Roux, also very fancy, at the Michelin starred Le Gavroche, where he met Gordon Ramsay, who he went on to work with and have an incredibly important professional relationship with for the next 15 years. At the age of 25, he was awarded his first Michelin star, and he also went on to give Angela Hartner her first job in a restaurant. It was also at work that he met his wife, Jane, who he speaks about so beautifully in this episode, and they live with their three children at home in Wimbledon. As well as priming his many restaurants for reopening when we're finally allowed to go and eat in a restaurant again and of course judging the best in the business on MasterChef The Professionals he's also supporting Comet Relief this year encouraging us all to pull on one of their official t-shirts which are a collaboration with Pixar and Disney featuring some of their most iconic characters and they're available now at TK Maxx so let's dial up the culinary wizard that is Marcus Waring (laughs) 
Marcus, how are you in this this remarkable time of ours? Remarkable is probably too generous a word, actually. Horrific is another. Uh, good. Um, I think this goes around your head in so many, so many times, in so many different ways. And you think you're having a bad time and you think the world's all against you. And then all of a sudden you realise that it's not just us in this problem. There's so many people across the country in all different walks of life. And then you start to look around, you've got your family around you, you've got all the TVs and computers and connections and books and everything. And it's actually dealing with the situation and staying in a positive frame of mind. I feel like I'm ready to reach for my sunglasses because there is going to be this blinding light of hope. Just it's just around the corner. It's like you, you're willing it, aren't you? Willing yeah, it. Yeah, you are. I know, and it's it is it's it's happening, and the vaccines are getting rolled out, and that's great. And and they're hitting the numbers, and it's great. It's great to see some positivity in the news, albeit that people are always looking for problems and trying to drag everything. At the end of the day, you know what? We've just got to look forward now. And I, I agree with you. Let's get our sunglasses on and let's look for the sunshine, and and we'll we'll be there. Your industry. God almighty, you've been through it. The hospitality mm. industry. I mean, where do you begin in starting in terms of starting to get back on your feet? Well, it's. I feel like we've had, you know, a, a good crack at it two or three times now, or two times we've had to get reopened. So how do we get back on our feet? Uh, well, I mean, okay, that's a million-dollar question. That I normally, I'm, long, I'm normally quite clear. Uh, I'm very focused. I think the lack of uncertainty from government at the moment, albeit hopefully next week we'll see some certainty or hear some certainty from Boris. I just hope there's a plan, a big long-term plan. We've got the vaccine. It's getting into people's arms. There's no reason now why government can't put a plan together that's big, bold, brave. We all can do our bit. I think we've all now got to come to terms with we can't go through this for the, for the fourth time. So I think the message really does need to be from government. It is down to you, the general public, us, the industries that are locked up to do the right thing. And I think if we all do the right thing and keep an eye on what everyone else is doing, yeah, we've got to look around and see what everyone else, we've got to report people doing wrong things, we've got to follow the rules. We can't do this again. It's not, it's, 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 there's going to already, there's already going to be problems on the horizon when mm. we start opening up again and businesses start to have landlords wanting their bills paid, VAT to yeah. be paid, so many unpaid bills, uh, and it's going to be very scary. It's all very well opening. It's how it's going to look is a completely different thing. People listening to the podcast now, if they want to support the hospitality industry as we come out of this, how can we do that? How can we make sure that that you have all of the support that you need? I think that if I remember when we opened uh, the beginning of summer last year, there was this massive rush out to to go out and eat into restaurants. And I think the first time we'd ever had a lockdown, it's the first time the country had ever been put into that level of isolation that, well, I can remember anyway. And so people went out and they rushed out and they had their their meals and everybody was really happy. I think we're going to have a little bit of that again. I think... um, to put a positive spin on it, let's let's cut down on the takeaways and let's go out and eat in some nice restaurants yeah. because the, the takeaways have been the winners of in the food industry at the moment more more than the restaurateurs have. So I'd like the general public uh, a little bit like uh, comic relief. You know, put your hand in your pocket, put some money on the table. Don't forget yeah. charity. Don't forget restauranting and don't forget the people on the high street because we all need people to start to come out again and go shopping in the shops, go out eating in the restaurants and, and look after our high, our high street because 
we're just now doing everything online and we need to remember that it's not all about online anymore. We're going to have to get back out slowly uh, and, and do what we used to do and do what we used to enjoy, which is go out and be sociable. But do you know what? Do you know what I've realised is we, we miss the experience. It's not just you can dial in food and drink. You can't dial in the experience. That's right. Yeah, I agree. You know, hospi- hospitality and uh, meeting people and be sociable and just enjoying an atmosphere and, and the surroundings that has just been sort of decimated. So by by supporting it, by going out and as soon as we get um, a light, you know, from from government, then we all need to start planning our summer. You know what? Don't don't plan to go on holiday. You know what? One of my biggest messages: don't plan to go abroad. I love Europe. I love the rest of the world. It's great. I can't wait to go and see it all again. Let's stay in this country. Let's spend our money here. Let's support local pubs, restaurants, small hotels. Let's have our staycation in this country. If it's anything like last year's summer, the weather's going to be great. I don't I don't think we all need to get on a plane. Uh, and go and look at the, you know, to just have to go on holiday. I think we need to be, there's still a problem out there and there's still a, a level of caution I think we all need to have. And I just think that we all need to be sensible um, and be brave and not feel that, we've, that we're losing out because we can't go on holiday. I went back to work uh, last year for the first time after lockdown and when actually we managed to make MasterChef professionals in the summer time when we were still in the lockdown, but we were sort of coming out of it slowly. So sort of May, June, June, uh, June, July and a bit of August last year. Yeah. Having been locked up, it, it, it felt incredible. And the energy of in the show and everyone just really pleased to be back out and be at work, getting out and and. and it, we made a great TV show, and I think that when I went back to the restaurant, eventually that level of energy was still there, and it just made mm. I really did feel there was an incredible amount of appreciation for your fellow worker, your colleagues around you, and all the different people that work in different industries. So when I went, when you go into filming, all the people, just even the people making the tea and the kitchen porter and the home economist and the contestants, everyone was just. Thrilled. happy and thrilled <laughs> and on fire but there was a lovely respect for each other's work a little bit more than there was there in the past that's good isn't it that's yeah. good it's like a like a a, a new appetite yes for the same old but yeah. god we miss the same old don't we we do and but i mean all of this feels terribly gratuitous to be discussing you know where to go on holiday and where to eat out when obviously we're here today talking about comic relief and you look at the charity sector I know hospitality has been hit hard but the charity sector has almost been decimated in in some quarters so what are you doing for comic relief this year and again where's that money going and how can people help well comic relief has been around feels like it's been around forever I think the key here though Kate is that we mustn't forget it and being part of it and being asked to put on an apron and have some cartoon characters it made me laugh the first shoot was great fun the, the memorabilia that, that people can go out and buy, it's, it's, it's small change, it's a couple of quid, it's, 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 a, it's not a great deal, but you have something that gives you, you get something in return for your money and that money goes to a great cause. And I think it's always about awareness. And I think that, that in the world that we live in today, with so much stuff online and we're doing everything remotely, this is something that we're just going to really put out there. There's a lot of great faces uh, who are promoting it. We mustn't forget charity and it's when it sort of drops into your lap um it makes you realize that there are other things outside my world of food and hospitality 
like charity that that really does need support. And I think that in this country, we're very good at giving and we're very good as long as we're aware of it. And it's all about the minute it's in our faces, we'll do it. Uh, and that's what this is about. Comic Relief is, is uh, Red Nose Day has been around forever and we must support it. And actually, I think we have as a nation been incredibly charitable this last year. Um, you know, you just look mm. at the response to food banks, for example. I mean, in some some areas of the UK, um, a 700% increase in demand for food banks. I mean, that's that's a sh- that's shocking. Then you look at what Comic Relief does, and I've worked with them for 20 years now, and been out to Africa and uh, some of the developing countries that they support and supply incredible kind of initiatives for. And then you realise, actually, we don't know how good we've got it because it's yeah. about... It's about a matter of pounds and pence making a difference between life and death. Charity does begin at home, but I think Comet Relief is, is a great cause and it does spread it across a little bit further. Um, I look at the national health in a completely different way now. I took oh, it, we all, don't we, we, all? All, we all took it for granted. It's incredible what we've got here. And you only have to get ill in a country that doesn't have a national health service to understand how great they are. Now, in normal times, Marcus, we would meet on this podcast and I would be popping the cork on a fine wine and each glass of wine would punctuate a new question. Um, obviously, we're doing this virtually. Um, so first of all, I'd like to ask, before I ask you your first question, if you had to pop open a bottle of wine right now, what would that wine be and and, and why that wine? Spring is almost in the air and I just love a very nice, mm. well-made, chill rosé. I just can't get oh. enough of it. I love it. And it's one of those quaffing wines that you just drink and drink and drink and you just slowly get drunk. Um, and <laughs> oh, now you're talking. Th- there's a great Imagine chateau. Imagine that with the sun on your shoulders and a glass of rosé. Oh. That's the one. That's be rosé. Just a nice light flush, blush rosé would be perfect for me. Tell me, is the paler the blush the better the wine when it comes to rosé? It's interesting. I, I personally find the taste, yes. Uh, I think mm. you can go really light and it can be flavorless i think rosé for me the lighter it is i we don't know these labels that we see in supermarkets they're all from all all over the place and i always find the, especially rosé it's the color it's a, a nice design label good price don't go too cheap don't go too high just nice in the middle and i'm guaranteed probably almost 10 times out of 10 you'll be fine now my first question for you I think we can safely say that the last 12 months certainly have been a time that no one could have predicted. And I wondered if you could rake back through your own life and experiences to think of a time that you could never have predicted was about to unfold. I'm going to go back as far as being working with my father and being at Southport Catering College, where my dad told me that I wasn't allowed to come into the family business and to go and find a job elsewhere because he felt that it wasn't moving forward and there was no future in it. And the only thing I could see was to become a chef. And when I went to, eventually went to catering college, I found something that I was very good at and enjoyed. And I think it's more enjoyed. And when I say good at, I mean, I felt natural. It felt normal to be in the kitchen, but I had already been in kitchens who, my brother was a chef, so I sort of spent time in kitchens. So I saw myself a little bit more advanced than the students that were around me at the time. I'd already had some years of experience while I was a schoolboy. Um, and it was the the door of being able to come to London was opened by uh, a competition that I was in at the college. 
Um, and one of the lecturers from another college from Manchester was judging us. And he took me to one side after this particular cooking competition and just loved the way I worked and the way I set out my kitchen, my stall, and I worked and the precision and tidiness. And he only saw me do one thing. And he asked me if I, I'd ever had an interest in, you know, moving forward in the industry outside of Southport um, because he knew the chef of the Savoy Hotel, Anton Edelman, and that um, he would like to sort of not sponsor me, but open that door and send me forward into one of the greatest kitchens in London, in London hotels anyway, um, from this young 17-year-old kid in Southport. And I think for me, in a point of time, that was a game changer for me because that was the door I never knew how to get to, not even a clue. And so that was a very special moment that um, I don't think I'd ever change. It, it, you're, you're quite right, I think, when you explain where you were coming from and you arrive at the doors of the Savoy. I mean, we've all, we all know of the Savoy, but you're right. How many of us get to A, step through those doors, but B, to step through and work in one of the greatest kitchens in the country. What were your nerves like at that time? As a homeboy, none of my cousins, my family, my brother, my sisters hadn't left home. So it was really unusual that my parents put me on a train and sent me to London. And in fact, they came with me for when they dropped me off and they, they came to London and left me in London. And I felt very lonely, uh, scared, unsure, didn't really know what to expect. And I used to remember walking or getting the tube from Earl's Court into the embankment and the noise and the hustle and bustle. And I, used to, I, can, I can hear those tube noises in my head now mm. and the fear running through my tummy. And then I, you'd come out and you'd walk up the, the strand, up to the Savoy, and you'd see, and it was always very early in the morning, and you'd see people sleeping in doorways of shops and people asking you for some money. And it was cold and windy and people was hustle and bustle. And there was people just like wouldn't have no issues of sort of knocking into you. And I felt all that really unusual. And then when I walked into the kitchen, went into the changing rooms, checked in, put my chef's whites on, put my apron on, walked into the, my, my area. That's where I felt really comfortable. I felt more comfortable in the kitchen of 100 plus chefs, full of energy, full of aggression, full of t- testosterone. And really, you shouldn't really feel comfortable in a place like that. I felt more comfortable in that environment than I did just walking along the streets of London because London was far bigger than that central kitchen. And it was about feeling happy in that place. And it took me a while. And it took me a while to get used to it. I was really homesick and it took me years to get over leaving Southport. But my father would never let me come back to Southport. Whenever I used to speak to him on the phone, it was, don't you ever think about coming back here? Why not, Dad? Because there's nothing in this town for you. You're in the best place. Stick with it. That was it. But he was he was obviously very determined that you weren't going to follow him into the family business, which was... He, he was a wholesaler, wasn't he? A fruit and veg wholesaler? Yeah. Why would he predict the end, the demise of that industry when we always need to eat? Because he was a workman of who took over his father's business with his brother and his sister in an era where the 50s, 60s, 70s, and his dad passed away pretty much, had a heart attack and died. And he was 22, my dad. Oh. And he had to take over the family business. And I never knew my granddad or any of my, my, my two granddads. And he, he just remembered how hard he was. But my father was never again a man who would change. He would always do everything the same way. From the minute he took over that business, he continued running it exactly the same. Yes, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. But 
he he also he also knew that computers and things were the future and that that he he would never bring that into the company but so to answer the question is corner shops were the milestone of where he used to to serve they disappeared right. the supermarkets took over restaurants yep. were a small part of his business but the biggest part of my father's business was school meal service so he used to provide the school meals with fruit and veg and back in those days the councils would say to 700 schools you'll get your veg from that supplier you'll get your meat from that supplier you'll get your fish from this supplier and then one day it was in the margaret thatcher era that kitchen kitchens in schools became a canteen where you got a choice meal and what i recognized was that you had 12 dinner ladies cooking food properly went down to three four dinner ladies opening tins and freezers and deep frying things and the fresh fruit changed and it became a completely different offering of chips and burgers and beans and nuggets and 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 that's when fresh food left the school kitchens because there was no one there to cook it and he could see this coming and he could see yeah. the contracts over the years getting smaller and smaller and smaller and he saw the future was going to hit the wall and he did and he did eventually he did but it, it, it got me out of it and he stopped me doing what I was about to do which was go and work with him forcing you to be brave and bold when actually his probably his instinct was I'd much rather have my kids close by because that's just how we are as parents you always want to know that yeah. they're only up the road I, and I agree with you there was never a goal beyond the job I was at there was never a this is what I want you know I hear it all the time I'm asking, what, what's the future for you I want to own my own restaurant I want to win a mission star I never said anything like that. It was, I'm in this job. What am I, I'm going to do this next. This is my next job. And every kitchen I went to from the Savoy onwards was always to gain another part of training in my, in my, in my career. So I'd go to various kitchens where I could learn pastry or I'd learn bakery or I'd learn fish or do a little bit of everything. So that when I completed my training and put on my head chef's hat, I ticked and covered all the boxes of the professional kitchens. So my CV looked very strong. It looked like I was a capable chef. I'd been in every area of a kitchen. And then one day you put on the head chef's hat on and that, that's when it's down to you then to sort of run your own thing and create your own style. Once you're through the door, it's really down to you what you do with it, isn't it? These are quite hostile environments, these kitchens. Yeah. It's a lot of tough love. Yeah, it's a very different place today, though, thank, thank, God, thank goodness, because um, back then it was survival of the fittest. But there's one thing... And he's a Yorkshireman, and I'm a Lancashire lad. Is you can't you can't work us under the table. I could outwork anybody in any kitchen when I was younger, and I and I my father taught me a work ethic, and how to stand on your feet for 15 hours a day was not an issue for me. We worked some serious long hours when I worked with my dad, so I was a I was I was a trained I was just a trained worker. At whatever yeah. I did, work horse. Yeah, I could put in more man hours than anyone standing next to me. And I think that's what made me stand out a little bit more than most people. It wasn't always about being the talented, the most talented chef in the kitchen. It was about how you applied yourself. And you, you always got recognised for your hard work more than the quality of one or two dishes that you created in one service. My first kitchen was Savoy, then the Gavroche under Albert, yeah, Michel. Albert, Michel. I mean, what were they like to have as sort of guiding lights? chalk and cheese compared to the Savoy because you've gone from 100 plus chefs down to 22, 23. And you, you, you'd you stepped into, I'd stepped into a three-star Michelin restaurant. It was, just, it was a restaurant that I'd saw and watched on a TV show called Take Six Cooks um, around about the time that uh, MasterChef was on TV with Lloyd Grossman in the very early days. So uh, late 70s uh, going into early 80s. 
I saw him in this restaurant on on this on this TV show, and I just saw pure, just incredible man, incredible attention to detail, a passion and a love for my industry like I'd never seen before, and that always used to stick in the back of my mind um, that there is such a passion, the aggression in kitchens and the work that you put into it, you sometimes miss the passion, especially in the big kitchens, because it's all about production. When I went mm. into Gavroche, it was all about the detail, all about precision. And I'd gone from working in a, like a Fiat garage into F1. And I was with <laughs> the elite. And it was it was clean and immaculate. But he was just Wow, what a man, what a chef, just what an absolutely incredible person. Over the years, we've all become obsessed with, um, you know, celebrity chefs and there's lots of shouting and that the drama takes over. Was that their style? You say they were chalk and cheese. Was that your introduction to superstar chefs? No, Gavroche wasn't these. No, Gavroche was about, there was only a voice was only raised because someone hadn't done something. It was small, it was, it was intimate. It was, you were in touching distance of everything. So... The communication was clear, it's crisp, and it was of the moment. It was only if you let yourself down that you miss, someone would raise their voice. But when you think about the Savoy with a much bigger style service, different type of food, banquets, the, you know, the seven sous chefs used to walk around like, like they were the part of the Gestapo and they were marching <laughs> around that kitchen, um, you know, seriously, you know, trying to keep this mechanism, this machine working. And it needed those people, it needed that, voice that volume it needed to drive this machine of chefs forward because mm. the quantity of work that we were going through was just quite extraordinary as a team but as individuals you were all you were work your individuals working in these sections that all had to come together as one big team and it was like you had to do it through this mass of of, of, of sergeant majors going around cracking the, the whip so to speak um, and it was a completely different environment. But when I w- left the Savoy, I left with fond memories and a great time. When I walked into Gavroche, I just saw something that was where I'd always wanted to try and get to. And it was that that sort of F1 garage rather than the volume. And that's where I found my niche. And I think that's what made me stand out in that competition back in the days at college. It was about refinement and, 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 and that attention to detail. And I found it in Gavroche. What I didn't realise was is that I wasn't really qualified to be in that level of kitchen at my age. I was 19 years old when I stepped when I walked in there, and so it was quite a challenge for me to be in a kitchen of that level at my age. And I survived. I survived because of the work ethic. But they obviously saw something in you. And mentorship is something that really comes with with what you do on um, MasterChef The Professionals. You're passing on your expertise and, and and trying to support young talent coming through. You were you, you gave Angela Hartnett her first job in a restaurant, didn't you? She worked for me uh, at uh, Laurentier and Petrus. And I, I saw Angela, the first time I saw Angela was at the aubergine when, when I was a sous chef there. And she came to work there. And we just didn't see a future for Angela in the kitchen. She just, she, she had, you know, I think she had a degree in history and she was a smart cookie. And we were like, what on earth do you want to be a chef for? And you're a woman. What are we doing coming into this kitchen that was just like... Was it alien for women to be in the kitchen at that in a stage? Kitchen, in, a, in a kitchen like that, completely, yeah. completely. Isn't that a shame? Yeah, and it was then. And that's how it was back then because it was, they, were, they weren't pleasant places to work. And we saw it. 
you know, you, you didn't, you don't, you don't see even I don't know today, but you never saw women in the in the forces as much. You didn't see women stepping into the SAS, did you? The the hardest core in army in the army. You do now, but you didn't back then, and it was a little bit like that back then. Was that was that the equivalent of the kitchen in, in some terms of sort of culinary uh, experiences? Angela Hartnett stepped into the SAS of kitchens. <laughs> uh, absolutely, and it was yeah. And why do why was it like that? Because it was the toughest kitchen. It was the smallest mm-hmm. kitchen. It was putting out the best food, led by a, a great leader. And Angela stepped foot in there. She stood her ground, and she she survived, and she got through. She got through it, and no one gets through it easily, and no one finds it easy. But we all look back with some very strange memories, but with fond memories that we got that badge and we survived. I mean, it's quite, when you look at it now, what a table full of talent in that kitchen. You, Gordon Ramsay, Angela Hartner, all kind of, you know, raising your game, pushing boundaries, winning stars. It must be quite an extraordinary time in your life. That was quite unusual. Um, And the selfish focus that you have to have, you push your friends away, you push your family away. You people often question why did you do it? Why do you need to work so hard? In a weird, perverse way, I used to get up and see it as nothing but a challenge. I, I the eighteen-hour days. I used to open the restaurant at six forty-five, and I would never ever leave it before one a.m. the next day. Never. I left it. We left half an hour every day for a break. We all did the same thing. I had to open it. I had to lock it and lock lock up the kitchen and. I don't know why we did it. It was it was just I, I sort of loved to hate it. And I think I never ever wanted to let my dad down. I never wanted to let Gordon mm. down. And I certainly didn't want to let myself down. So I had to go through the process and think, well, I'd, I'd accepted the job. I knew Gordon because I'd met Gordon at the aubergine three years earlier. So I knew the kitchen I was walking into. I didn't know the kitchen, but I knew the man. Um, but I didn't realise he, I knew he was good, but I didn't realise he was as good as he, as he became. Because he he was at Gavroche with me, and even then, he stood out from everybody else at that particular time, and he'd had some great training under his belt. But he was just ambitious, and he showed he showed a great level of leadership and ambition to to be the best, and he did, and he became the best. I've I've, I've worked with a lot of chefs, and I've met a lot of chefs, but when you're in that kitchen, we were exposed to media, journalists television camera crews would come in that was very you know your camera crews didn't really come into kitchens in those days um you know gordon made hell's kitchen it was it was part of a whole new it was pushing the boundaries of food and, and television because back then it was about mary berry delia smith uh rick stein a little bit you know keith floyd it was completely just about home cookery or cookery in the kitchen mm. showing the nation how to cook basic because you think in the 70s and 80s we didn't eat great food it was basic. No. Yeah, and to understand great food, you needed to see inside the great kitchens. And the minute there was an appetite for it on TV and in, and in the media, it just exploded. But what was really interesting in those times, there was, two, there was two points of difference. There was the fine dining Hell's Kitchen style kitchens and, and TV shows. And then there was your Jamie Oliver, the mm. young gun, ripping it up, showing that you don't have to follow the norm. And all this new food and the way we cooked all came out of TV media. It was brilliant. And it would, it, without that, you wouldn't know about it. Gordon was one of the first chefs that ventured off to work in the top kitchens in Paris. And not a lot of chefs did that. Michael Keynes was one as well. And a few other chefs. Tom Aikens worked in Paris. I worked in Paris. Mm. There were some chefs that ventured out into the world of, of, of Europe. 
to go and work in the great kitchens and bring that inspiration. Claire Smythe, you know, did it at, at Alan Ducasse. Mm. And that really starts to form who you are, but you have to break out from the crowd to show that level of individuality. The work that young chefs go through today, where what the point of difference is from today and yesterday, and speaking as a senior member of my industry, which I now am, which just yeah. passed like that. I've been in the industry 36 years now. I've been a cook. Wow. Um, I'm 50, but I've still got a plan of 15 more years in front of me and what I'm doing na- next. But where there's been a game changer, and it, it can only be, it's these things. Our phones. Our phones, because the chefs of today have every recipe, every picture of every chef around the world at their fingertips. Now, what's going to make Access. those chefs... What's those exactly? So, what's going to make these chefs stand out from the crowd when you everyone can see the same thing that you can see? And in our generation, we stood out because we were we were we were individuals doing our thing. Today, we see a lot of the same in a lot of restaurants, and it's it's going to be very very difficult to find those nuggets of gold or diamonds chefs that are out there. And Master Chef is quite interesting because. MasterChef does find an unsung heroes that you would never in a million years discover without that TV show. Because for all the recipes you can get on your phone, it doesn't need to say that you're going to be, you're going to be recognized or you're going to be noticed. And I think that goes in for lots of industries, in, in music, in film, in TV. Mm. And now in the world of food, um, our chefs now have to really do make an effort. And, and MasterChef is, is finding gems that would never have been discovered. And it's only because they've crossed the line and saying, do you know what? I'm not getting recognised in the place of work that I'm in. My head chef doesn't recognise me. I'm not really going anywhere. Or I'm a head chef and I'm, all, I'm working with all day long as a kitchen porter. You know, so they come on to MasterChef and they end up in this weird environment of television. And we just open them up and expose them to find out who they are. Because they're lost souls and I think that's why they come on the show. They don't know where they are in their careers. They need they need guidance. They need a mentor. They need an Elbert. They need a Gordon. Mm. They need a Marcus. Yeah. To go. Sometimes it's just that that endorsement of going. That was great. You've got something. You'll keep going if somebody that you respect gives you that endorsement. Especially in our industry, we speak about it. Is to, to to all the young chefs out there. If you're in that job and you're happy and you've got your lifestyle that you're pleased with, then be content with it. Because there's nothing wrong with having a girlfriend and a boyfriend or wanting to walk your dog and finish work at seven o'clock at night. There's nothing wrong with working in the local pub and having a family around you and not wanting to come to London. That's great, but you have to be prepared to live with that for the rest of your life. And if that's what you're looking for and you're content with it, then you do need to not worry about what everyone else is doing and just stay focused on your own goals. And I think sometimes with social media, we get mixed up with what everyone else is doing and we get to a point in our lives where we feel left out. Yeah, you you can't. You have to, yeah, your your value system has to sit around you, not everybody yeah. else's values. And I'm sorry, yes, it does. It doesn't really, it does sort of come from the chefs you work for, but it really stems from my parents. And I think it's down to the parents to put that into their young children and to make sure that they have a, a family value and a, and, a, and a get up and go work ethic. And so we've all been doing homeschooling and it's been really interesting about how much we don't know about what our kids are doing. But I also think, I know one thing, when my kids go back to school, they'll go back a little bit wiser, a little bit stronger, 
and they'll go back with a completely different view on their schooling and appreciation for their schooling because, wow, I never thought I'd hear my three kids say they miss school. I have to look at this and say that this is a leveller. I hope it's a mm. leveller and I hope it's a game changer and I hope that I hope we don't forget this period of time. I think we'll talk about it forever. Our children will certainly talk about it, but I hope it is it changes the world moving forward in in so many ways. There's a belief, isn't there, that three months is all you need to change behaviour. Like that's you okay. know, like if you're giving up smoking or you're yeah. going to you know whatever it is. So you're right in the, in that, and I really hope that we take the value of some of the lessons that we've learned. I don't know. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was with you on the great leveller. I'm now sort of coming to think that we're all in the same storm. Just some of us are travelling in better boats. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I I, I would agree with you there. Because I think if you're 15 floors up with four kids in a high rise, you're not having the same pandemic experience as you and I. No. I think we've learned great kindness. We've learned Mm. community. We've learned what charity really means. And I don't mean by just giving money. I mean by being kinder with your with everything yeah. with you you know offering offering yourself up as a resource and recognizing that there's value in that as well my my son is in is it, my son my other son's at university in durham and he's probably obviously all been home but he's been working in a food bank um and it's been interesting listening to his stories and he's, you know the, the, he said the volume of food that comes in is phenomenal he, he's absolutely blown away i it takes a lot for a 19-year-old that lives in the world that my children live in, sitting in here in Wimbledon. It's great. It's lovely. And I always talk about where I come from, where we come from, and, and the people in the high-rise buildings that you just mentioned, they're still mm. there going through a much tougher time than we are. And getting him into that uh, food bank or, or to, to the sorting place, it took a while, and it was for the future. And what was really interesting was he's doing it. he's doing it to give back because – I think all young people at university have to do it. They have to stand out once they leave their, their university. But I did say, and, I'm, and I really mean this, don't do it for your degree. Do it because it means something, because it is about giving back. And we all do it in our different ways. And I do it all the time. I may not go and work in a food bank every day, but I do do things for charity. I will give auctions. I will give myself up. I will give tables and chef tables away. I will do yeah. comic relief. It's all done in different forms, but the charitable work has to begin somewhere. But don't just do it for your degree. Do it for the cause. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My next question to you, I want you to put your head chef's hat on and think about seminal moments in your life. If you had to put together a three-course menu that served up the three seminal moments in your life, what would your starter, main course and dessert be? I think I think there's a main... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start with the main course because the Sunday roast was a foregone every single weekend, every single Sunday in our house. Dad's a fruit and potato merchant, so it was lots of spuds, tons of the things. Lots of veg and always, <laughs> always a roast joint and a gravy served up on a Sunday afternoon or Sunday Sunday evening, um, and it's pivotal in our life. And it, and it is something that I get asked, and it's a boring answer. What's your favourite meal? It's a roast leg of lamb, new potatoes, garden vegetables. It's just absolutely delicious. New potatoes, not roast potatoes. Well, it was on the lamb, on the on the spring lamb. We always had new potatoes. But if you ask my dad, mm. oh, it's always roasties ten times over. And we didn't have, we always had roast potatoes all the year, but the spring lamb, lamb's one of my favorite meats. So for me, we yeah, always had, we always had new potatoes with lamb and roasties with everything else that you could possibly think of. <laughs> um, I think a starter, prawn cocktail. It's all about Southport. It's where I'm from. A good classic old fashioned prawn cocktail. Mm. Love it. Love it. Um, for, 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 for my pudding, I'm going to have to go with uh, custard tart for a few reasons. One, I used to buy them at Latham's uh, uh, Bakery Shop, which is across the road from my nan's in Crossens. Uh, little, little individual custard tarts with the with the uh, with the nutmeg on top, and yeah. they were just incredible. That was a dessert that I cooked on the Great British menu that I ended up cooking for the Queen on her 80th birthday. So I've Did gone from you? this yeah this little custard tart that I used to eat as a kid with a cup of tea in my in my in the warehouse. Um, then being invited onto the Great British menu to conjure up a, 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 a menu from Lancashire, and the dessert I cooked was because I, I took this this recipe. It was actually my, grand, my grandmother's recipe, and I developed it into a large tart rather than an individual, and then just cut a beautiful wedge slice of it, and I cooked it for the Great British menu uh, judges. And I remember Prue Leith uh, absolutely almost in heaven when she she tasted it because it was one of those desserts that you. You, you, we all remember, but you've forgotten how good it really is. And yeah. that, that was my one of my first incredible moments on television where I got a 10, 10, 10 out of all three judges. And I ended up cooking it for the Queen and meeting her all through and then custard tart. I, I was part of the menu, so I did the dessert. Uh, and then for three of the chefs, Richard Corrigan, Bryn Williams, and I think it was Nick Nan uh, did, did one of the courses. 
And I was the last, I was so nervous. It was like, she, she only at this, it was the banquet banqueting house in London. And we, we were the only guests that she spoke to afterwards. And um, when she got up from her lunch, they clap her out of the room and this clapping started and we, we were lined up and we, we knew she was on her way and it took forever for her to get there. Uh, coming out of the room, she obviously stopped and spoke to people. I've never been so nervous about meeting anyone so much in all my life. Really? I, I've, I was, when she was standing in front of me, she was just this little lady, but it was the Queen of England, you know, and it, like you you see her, you've read She's her. small but mighty, isn't she? Small, yeah. but got more power than you can imagine in just her presence. And she, I don't even know what I said, um, but it was incredible. Amazing. Never forget that. Do you know what? What you've gone with there is a really simple British menu. Yeah. Nothing fancy. No, I've had some great memories of food over my life in different restaurants. Uh, some great memories of food in France, uh, eating and going out and working there, but also eating. I've had some memorable dishes on MasterChef finals. And they're all different and they, they give you different memories. But those three dishes are probably the three that really cut through the heart of me and who I am and where I came from. And I think one of the most important things about life is not just about the experiences that you've gone through, but it's about where you've come from and remembering that. And those three three meals are all about core value, but they're all based around family uh, and, and my family of, of, of Lancashire. I wanted to know if you had to give a speech, a thank you speech, to all that have contributed to who you are, what you've become and how you got there, who would be on your list of thank yous? The gentleman that taught me called Mike Condell um, at Southport Catering College made cooking, he made the theory of cookery really enjoyable, even though I hated kitchens. Um, Jack Neighbour, who discovered me in that competition and opened the door to to... Uh, the Savoy, um, probably every single chef de cuisine that I've worked for. Um, they've all given me something. They've all guided me. They've all given me advice. The, 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 the biggest has to be to my wife, who if you ever marry a chef, wow, you've got to put up with a lot of shit um, because we are self-centered individuals who struggle to share, but have we're living and working in the world of giving. Uh, and being hospitable mm. but there's a core sort of value to us that's quite in, it's quite it's unique to our industry I should say and I think that that speech would be to everyone that's played a part um, in carving out the chef that I am today and there's no two ways about it Jane plays a huge role in that because that's the one person that brings real core my home values and made me do what my father never did. And that was enjoy the time with your children while they're with us. My father, when he eventually retired, all four of us were adults and had moved on. And he never, ever stood on a football pitch with us. He never, we never did anything Aww. with us. Never did anything apart from took us on holiday for 14 days of every year. And that was it. Um, and after the most of that time, he was asleep because he was too knackered to do anything. Um, and I, when I had, when I had children, being part of their schooling and being involved in all the things they do in school and outside school has been some of the most memorable times that I've had. And I think being able to take the two, the professional job and the home life, 
enjoy them both together. Because when I come inside my home and close the door, I'm dad and I'm a husband and I muck in like everyone else. I, I, I washed up, I empty dishwashers, I cook, I clean, I'll hoover, I'll even iron if I have to. Because in this house, we're a team and we all do our bit. Mm. But when I leave the front door, I mark as the chef and I go to work and I do yeah. my Then thing. it's yes, chef. But yeah. at home, it's like, what? Yeah, yeah. It, it can't have been easy for Jane at times. No. Um, she must be quite a remarkable woman. My, I think, I think she is. Um, we, my dad gave me one. I, you see, notice I always go back to my dad. My dad said yeah. one thing he's, to me. He's a huge influence, isn't he? He's a huge because he was the rock that always was there, and he, strange enough, he still is there. Um, and he would treat me the same at the age of 50 as I was when I was 13, 14 years old. He doesn't speak to me any differently. He'll still clip me around the ear roll. He'll still tell me to put the kettle on. But when he put me on that train, <laughs> when, when, when he actually left me in, in London and he was getting on a train, it was the other way around, I can't remember which way it was, he shook my hand and he, as the train was pulling out, he said, Marcus, he says, one last thing I want to say to you. He said, if you ever, ever, ever get married, and you ever meet someone, you get married, you make sure you marry someone who understands the world that you're about to go into because you're going to be working a lot of hours and to be successful, you're going to have to work incredibly hard. He said, if you marry someone, make sure they understand your world. He said, because your mother, she never bloody understand anything that I ever did. <laughs> and she still doesn't today. So, and all I ever get is a lot of bloody aggro. So that was his message. And so when I met Jane, we went out with each other for four, 70, seven years before we mar- before I married her. And we had gone through a lot of shit together in the kitchens. And she was with me when I was in the aubergine working under Gordon and, and, and just after that. And we'd done a lot of traveling together as well. And so we really did know each other. She knew me, I knew her. We both had careers and we both respected each other's careers. And I think I knew, I didn't get married for the fun of it. I got married because it just felt right. And that person, was was Jane and she understands my world and she's never ever asked me to take off my chef's jacket. She's never asked me to be anything different than than me. And I and I and I respect that. And that's why when I come home, I always become part of the team because you have to I had to earn that respect and it needs passing back as well at the same time because it's not about just being a mum. I didn't she wasn't a mum when I met her. She she was an individual young girl with her own career. And so we have to marry those mm-hmm. careers together to work together. And then when a family comes along, it all changes. And so she was working in the kitchen when you met her? No, she was working in, in I met her at Gravetown Manor. She was uh, a business management and she was working in the front of house. And I first saw her, the head chef at Gravetown Manor, um, his wife worked in the front of house and she, had, she also looked after all the uh, CVs of the future recruits. And Jane's CV was on the head chef's desk because they were both married, the head chef and this manager. And uh, there was a couple of CVs and Jane's CV was on the desk. So I first saw Jane's little picture and her CV on the head chef's desk as I was the sous chef at the time. And I read, I read through it oh. and then eventually she, she arrived, she got the job. Uh, and we, we, we sort of hit it off from there. And, and yeah, that's how it started, on the head chef's desk. The CV that was. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> the kids might listen. You don't want to share that no. much. <laughs> Um, that that advice that your dad gave you has has served you so well. Is that the, would you would you pass that same advice to your children? Yes, I pass it on to everybody. Um, I would always pass it on to anyone I see on MasterChef and say, I you, you do see some chefs who come on who they get through certain stages of the career in the competition and they do have family and they want to go and spend time with their family. They're, you have know, chefs who say my 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 
my girlfriend entered me or my my partner entered me into the competition because they want me to succeed. And it's all about family values. And I think it's really important to understand each other that not everybody needs. I never planned to write a book. I never planned to be on telly. I never planned to to own a restaurant. I never planned to stay in, in London. It just it just all fell into my journey, and it was about one step of the way. So I would, without doubt, pass that you know that on to my to my children. But I pass that advice on to anybody. Mm. And I think you know, just do something you love. That's the yeah. that's the main takeout I would give to anyone. Yeah. Just get out of bed and not feel like you're going to work. Yeah. Yeah. That you look forward to every day and the yeah. challenges and the potential. Yeah, it is. It, 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 and it's, and it's the about. fun and it, and it is what it's all about. But it, it's always easy when you're like you like you and I and other people that are, are in, have got to this position, uh, got to the position mm. that we're happy with. It's about now how you inspire the future generations and the new people coming through. And I, that's what I love about MasterChef. I love that about books and doing certain things, even, even this with Comic Relief. You know, having fun in a studio and putting on an apron and spreading awareness is in, in, in the charity form, but also in, in other ways to inspire. You can achieve your goals and your dreams. You just need to have an open mind. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, everybody that wants to get involved with Comet Relief, go to the website. As always, there will be a huge noise around this year's campaign, and rightly so. Um, do what you can to get involved. And I look forward to dining with you in real life yeah. in a real restaurant that'd very be, soon. That'd be great. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. Please, if you have a moment or a shred of inclination, do rate and review us. It really does help other people to find and discover the show. As always, the show is produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Richard Hatherall for Yahoo UK, and editing and co-production comes courtesy of Callum Goddard Mucklow. Andy Bell, as always, has provided our music and our beats. You can catch all of his work on iTunes and Spotify with Oasis and Ride and as a solo artist. We'll be back next week. Until then, do as we do and please drink responsibly. But more than that, just take great care of yourselves. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.